Let us pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Father, that we might not be hearers only of the word, but that we might become doers. And that we might become doers because you have given us grace upon grace. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So today we are finally back in James. Today we return to this wonderful little letter. And to help us get back into it, I want to remind you uh, a little bit about what this letter is all about. Not really a full review, but just some uh, just some things I want to remind you of as we get back into it. This is a letter written by James the Apostle, I believe written by James the son of Zebedee and brother of John. He is writing to Jewish Christians who he calls the diaspora, these scattered Jewish Christians who moved out from Jerusalem after Stephen's murderdom, uh, which is recorded for us in the book of Acts in chapters 7 and 8. And so that, that, that diaspora, actually chapter 6 and 7, the diaspora then takes place at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. That's the group that James is writing to, these Jewish Christians who have fanned out across the Roman Empire. And they are facing all kinds of trials because of their faith in Jesus. Things are not developing as they expected. The kingdom has now come, but the kingdom's not looking like what they expected. Jews who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah are pressuring them and persecuting them. And this is one of the most difficult things they're facing. James writes a circular letter to these Christians to remind them of the way of Jesus. He calls them to faithfulness and to maturity. In many places, he explicitly reminds them of the teaching of Jesus, especially the teaching of Jesus found in Matthew's Gospel, the teaching recorded in Matthew's Gospel, which is probably the only other book of the New Testament they have at this point when James writes his letter. James is calling these Christians to wisdom, and he is even showing them what the way of wisdom looks like. He's calling them to wisdom. He says, ask for wisdom, but he's also imparting wisdom to them. Uh, James can be considered wisdom literature, in fact. It's much like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, It's got all kinds of links with the Old Testament wisdom literature. How can we summarize James' message? Um, I came across an interview a while back that made me think of James, and it may be a helpful way uh, to summarize what James is all about. This was an interview with Jordan Peterson. Uh, Peterson was being interviewed, actually, by a Roman Catholic bishop. And uh, Peterson is not a Christian, Uh, as best I can tell. He's certainly been heavily influenced by the Christian faith and by the Bible, but he doesn't seem to be a believer himself. But what I thought he, what he said to this bishop, I thought was very telling and in some ways, uh, I think links really well with James. This is what he told the bishop. He said, a church that emphasizes mercy and forgiveness, but does not require people to turn away from their evil ways is a church that does not really care about people. We might say a a church that is soft on sin, a church that goes soft on sin, is a church that doesn't really care about people, doesn't care enough to tell them what they need to hear. And then he went on and said this. Peterson said, if you really love someone, you cannot tolerate it when they are less than they could be. If you really love someone, you cannot tolerate it when they are less than they could be. And the bishop said, that's interesting. And then Peter said to him, 
Your problem is you guys. <laughs> I said this to the, to the bishop, to the pastor. The, the problem is you guys, you pastors, don't ask enough of your people. And if that's been true here in Trinity Presbyterian Church, I want to ask your forgiveness if we have not asked enough of you. Peterson goes on to say, he says, we're built for nobility, to live noble lives, lives of excellence. When he talks about living a life of nobility, I take that to mean living a life fit for royalty, but that doesn't mean a life of comfort and ease. If you know anything about Jordan Peterson, that would not be the point. No, it's going to be a a life of sacrifice and service because that's what really produces greatness. Now that, I think, is what James is doing in this letter. He is calling on Christians to live up to their high calling, and he will not tolerate anything less. He will not tolerate the church being less than it could be because he cares. Because he cares, because he's a faithful pastor, a faithful shepherd of the sheep. He loves the church so much, he cannot tolerate the church falling short of what it can be and what it should be. He loves Christians so much, he cannot tolerate the thought of Christians not becoming what they should be, becoming what God calls them to be. We have this royal calling. In fact, James will speak of the royal law of liberty in this letter. We have a royal law to live by, a royal word we've been given. We are nobility. We're called to live lives of greatness. James reminds us that forgiveness and grace cannot be separated from a transformed, obedient life. You can't just hear the good news and then go your own way. You hear the good news, you believe it, and then you put God's word into practice. That's what James shows us again and again. James asks a lot of us. That's why some people have not liked this letter in the history of the church. He asks a lot of us. He asks a lot of the church. He even gives Christians a hard time, a really hard time, you might say, as you get into chapters 4 and 5. Some people have even said James is really being harsh here. For somebody who's talked a lot about gentleness in his letter, he sure does seem to sound harsh. But it's all for our good. He's telling us what we need to hear. It's all to whip us into shape. Because James knows the Christian faith is not for cowards. Being a disciple of Jesus is not for the faint of heart. The Christian life is not a passive life. It's an active life, a life full of action as we put into practice what we hear in God's word. We hear and then we do. But that takes courage, that takes grit, that takes perseverance, even through all kinds of obstacles and opposition and trials. And that's what James deals with again and again. But James comes back to us in this letter again and again and says, this is the whole point, that you would become mature, that you would become perfect. That's really what that word perfect means in this context. It means to be mature. James is calling us to maturity. So often in the church today, it seems that failure is celebrated more than growth and victory. You hear things like this. These are some things I've come across that I've jotted down. This is what uh, one, one teacher said. Christian, you cannot obey the law. Your certain failure is a means to show forth the grace of God when you repent. Okay, you cannot keep the law. <laughs> okay, and, and somebody might say, well, then, well, why even bother trying? Okay, but then I'm told my failure is supposed to manifest the grace of God. Well, we'll see our failures do give God an opportunity to show us grace, but this way of looking at the Christian life, I think, is, is very incomplete, very flawed. Here's another one. We don't need more lists of how to be a better spouse, parent, or Christian. We need more grace. 
Well, why are those things set in opposition together? Being better in these different roles we're called to fulfill, why is that set over against God's grace? Maybe we do need some lists of what to do. Here's another one. This, this kind of really sums it up. My life strategy for today, fail, repent, repeat. Okay. There are some Christians who, they, they would say, fail, repent, repeat. Fail, repent, repeat. That sums up the whole Christian life for them. But here's what James would have us see. If you keep failing in the same old ways and you never make progress, well, I think James would want us to ask, have you really repented? If there's really never any change. See, James does tell us that we are sinners, and certainly we will always be sinners in this life. It's true, we all sin, and we will always sin till we enter into glory at death. James says we stumble in many ways, and if you break the law at one point, you've broken the whole law. James tells us all of that. But that does not mean that the Christian life is one of constant failure. It does not mean the Christian life is static, that we just stay where we are, stuck in the same old sins, in the same spiritual ruts, that we never get anywhere, that we just spin our wheels continuously until we die and get glorified all at once. No, that's not James' picture of the Christian life. And further, James shows us that God's word, God's law, is not a crushing burden for the believer. In fact, that's why he calls it the royal law of liberty. If you want to be a king, if you want to fulfill this noble calling, this royal calling God has given to you, well, here's the way you do it in this law God has given to us. And it's not a law that binds you in some kind of slavery. It's actually a law of perfect liberty. A law that shows you the way to maturity and what freedom looks like. The law of God is to humans what fish is to water. What water is to a fish. It's how we're made to live. It's how we're designed to live. So of course there's freedom found in obeying God's law. Just as the fish finds freedom swimming in the water and you take the fish out of the water, what happens? He dies. You violate God's law. You violate the the design that God has built into who you are. Bad things are going to happen. James wants us to see we are not only freed from sin's penalty, but also from sin's power and even to some degree from sin's presence in our lives. That's what the Christian life should look like. Yes, there are failures, but there should be progress. There must be growth as well. James will not allow us to be spiritual schizophrenics, a double-minded people professing one thing and living uh, out something else professing to be believers, but not manifesting our faith in good works. No, James shows us where there is faith, there will be works, and especially works seen in a life poured out of mercy, charity towards the poor, a life of courageous and bold obedience. This is what proves our faith. It's what manifests our faith. And if those fruits aren't there, then saving faith is not there either. James shows us this. Now, a lot of Christians today, again, will say, well, All my attempts to obey are going to fall short of the goal. And besides, trying really hard is probably a form of legalism. If I try really hard to be obedient, doesn't that just mean I'm trying to earn God's favor? And so, I'll just stay where I am. No. James would say, you must change. And James would say, look, there is hope for change. There is hope for renewal and obedience. James continually drives us towards growth, towards maturation, towards perfection. Again, somebody might say to James, but James, I'm still going to fail. 
And James would say, yes, we all stumble in many ways. And when we break the law of God, at one point we break the whole of God's law. But God gives us grace. He gives us grace upon grace. And he gives us grace to forgive those failures, but also to help you fail less. James wants you to know there is grace when you fail. We just read chapter 4, verse 6. God gives grace upon grace. God gives more grace. But the message of James is not just your failures are forgiven. That's embedded in what James says. But it's also here is the way of life. Walk in it. Here is the royal law of liberty. Fulfill it. You have been born anew by God's word so you can obey God's word, so you can believe and do God's word. James shows us the way to life and the way of wisdom. And you know what? Sometimes that way is given to us in the form of a list. This is true all throughout scripture. The Ten Commandments is a list, isn't it? A list of do's and don'ts. What's interesting is in verses 7 through 10, which are really, as we'll see, a a self-contained section uh, in a certain sense, James gives ten commandments of his own. There are ten verbs, ten imperatives, ten commands that really sum up what he's getting at, and they just come at us in rapid fire. But look, you can count it out. Ten commands there. It's, it's, It's the ten commandments according to James. And James is giving us these Ten Commandments to show us the narrow way that leads to life. That leads to maturity, that leads to perfection. Now, we're going to come back and look at some of the details here more in future weeks because there is a lot here in the details. But today, this is what I want you to see. In chapter 4, these first uh, 10 verses of chapter 4, James is describing for us what we could call the antithesis. The antithesis. That's a big word. What's it mean? Well, by that I mean the contrast between those who live out their faith and those who don't. The antithesis. The sharp contrast between those who repent and those who don't. Those who are wise and those who aren't. Those who are friends of God and those who are friends with the world. The antithesis is between those who love God and those who love the world. Those who humble themselves before God and those who won't. That's the contrast. That's the sharp contrast James is drawing in these verses. Now, this section is really building on everything James has said in this letter so far. Uh, the James of La- the, the, the letter of James is very carefully constructed. This is often not noticed about James. But each section builds upon the previous section. So he's building on everything he said in the letter so far, but he's especially building on the immediately preceding section. And this is what James does all throughout his letter. Each section is linked to the one that goes before it, and they're like links in a chain. So he'll pick up on something he's just said, and then he'll run with that through a section. And then he'll start a new section by picking up on something he just said, and he'll run with that for a bit. And so you can kind of get a sense for what's going on in each section by comparing it to the immediately preceding section and the following section. So if we compare 4, 1 to 10 to the immediately preceding section in 3, 13 to 18, what do we find? Well, the previous section starts with a question in 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Chapter 4, verse 1 starts a new section with a similar question. Where do wars and fights among you come from? 
Both questions have to do with what is the case among you, with the state of things in their community. Is there wisdom in their community? And why is there warfare in their community? So we got a question about the community right at the start. The previous section ends with peace, how wisdom produces peace in 3.18. The next section starts with war. What happens if there's not wisdom in the community? There's war, there's conflict, there's quarreling, there's fighting. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, makes a contrast between wisdom from above and wisdom from below. There is a heavenly wisdom and a worldly wisdom, a heavenly wisdom and a demonic wisdom. The wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom God wants us to live by, and the wisdom of Satan, the wisdom of the world. There's that contrast developed there. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, will develop a similar contrast between friendship with God and friendship with the world. Living in a godly way versus living in a worldly way. See, that antithesis between the two wisdoms in 3.13 to 18 now broadens out into two sharply contrasted, comprehensive ways of life. And so you've got these two paths that are being contrasted. And remember, I've said James is wisdom literature. James is New Covenant wisdom literature. James is like Proverbs for the New Covenant. Uh, Proverbs is the central wisdom book in the Old Testament, of course. And what do you find in Proverbs? You continually find a contrast between two paths. It's a father teaching his son, and there are two paths the son can take. One that is the road of foolishness, and it might look like a lot of fun. And you might have a lot of fun along the way, but it ends in death. It ends in disaster. And the pathway of wisdom, which is much harder, more of an uphill climb. It's more of a narrow way. But it leads to glory. It leads to beauty. It leads to life. And that's the contrast that you have in the book of Proverbs. And James is drawing the same kind of contrast. It's interesting. Jesus lays out the same kind of contrast in the Sermon on the Mount, which can also be considered Wisdom literature, in a way, a wisdom sermon. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is constantly contrasting two paths, two ways. The broad way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life. And he makes this contrast in a lot of different ways. Like we'll talk about two different kinds of trees. Trees that bear good fruit and trees that bear bad fruit. And he says you'll know a tree by its fruit. So you've always got this contrast running between two different ways of life. In fact, I would say that this section in James almost functions as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. All of James is built upon the Sermon on the Mount, but especially this section. And the connections are really worth noting here. So James has got connections with Proverbs and the wisdom literature. He's also got connections here with the Sermon on the Mount. Consider some of these. James is taking the teaching of Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, and now applying it to the new situation that these scattered Jewish Christians find themselves in. And so in chapter two, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you murder. Now, it's not likely that these Christians have actually committed murder within their community. I don't think that's likely here. He's probably using this metaphorically to describe the way that they have treated one another, which is a lot like what he does with adultery in verse 4 when he calls them adulteresses. That's obviously spiritual adultery that is in view, is that they have committed idolatry, and this is considered spiritual idol- spiritual adultery, just like in the Old Testament prophets. This kind of uh, contrast is set up again and again, where the prophets would accuse Israel of adultery because they have forsaken God. Well, that's spiritual adultery. It's probably spiritual murder that is in view here. 
They are hating one another in their hearts, murdering one another in their hearts. But of course, that's exactly what James taught, what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, he who is angry at his brother without cause, he who hates his brother and calls him a fool is guilty of murder. And James is saying, that's what you've done. You're, You're angry with one another. You're hating one another without cause. You're guilty of murder. You've committed a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Maybe you haven't literally shed blood, but you're murdering one another in your heart. And that's why there are these fights and divisions and quarrels within your community. In this section, James addresses prayer. He turns to prayer again, and he echoes the Sermon on the Mount once more. He says in verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he goes on to say when they do ask, they ask in a selfish kind of way. But when he says you do not have because you do not ask, that's very similar to Jesus' teaching on prayer in Matthew chapter 7 when he talks about asking, seeking, and knocking. They're not praying persistently, so they're not getting what they ask for. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, Jesus has already taught that when you pray, you've got to pray persistently. You've got to persevere in prayer. You've got to ask, seek, and knock continually. James goes on in verse 9 to say we should mourn over our sins. But when we humble ourselves in this way, when we mourn over our sin, what happens? We will be exalted. And so those who mourn, what will happen? They will be comforted. That's just what Jesus teaches in one of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. James goes on to talk about the evils of setting ourselves up as judges of our brothers in chapter 4, verse 11. We didn't read that far, but he goes on to talk about judging one another there. And of course, that just echoes Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not, lest you be judged. So what do you have? James is taking all of that teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and applying it to this new situation. When you look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 as a whole, what do you have? James is giving us a description of the Christian way of life, which is really a life of repentance. James doesn't use the word repentance, but that's really what he's talking about. That's what's being described here. What does it look like when God's people repent? I said this is all about the antithesis. Well, it's really about the antithesis between those who have repented and those who have not. Those who have repented from friendship with the world and who have entered into friendship with God. This is what repentance looks like. These are the fruits of repentance that James is describing here. He's calling us to repentance. But this is the key thing to see. This is really the problem James is addressing. And it's so important to see this because it gets right, I think, at the heart of what's happening to the church in our day in America. So important to see this. And I think this also explains why James uses very harsh rhetoric, very harsh language in chapters 4 and 5. Here's the thing. We would expect all the repentant people to be found in the church. And then we would expect the unrepentant people to be found outside the church, right? We repent when we become Christians, and and that's how we enter the church. And so the repentant people are going to be found in the church, and the unrepentant people are going to be found outside the church. But what does James actually find when he surveys the state of these churches in the diaspora, these scattered Christian communities? He finds that there are unrepentant people in the church. 
somehow, some way, unrepentant people have found themselves inside the church, on the inside of the Christian community. Unrepentant people in the church. Or at least people who have not repented as deeply as they should. Their repentance is, is, is very incomplete. There are people in the church who are still friends with the world. Worldliness has been brought into the church. Friendship with the world has been brought into the church. And because these Christians are not at war with the world the way they should be, because they are not at war with the world, they are at war with other Christians. Their worldliness, their evil desires are producing conflict in the church. See, what happens when Christians look more like the world than they look like Christ? Well, James tells us here, you've got conflict in the body. There are fights and quarrels among the members of the body. You've got unanswered prayer because either people are not praying or not praying persistently, or they're praying selfishly. They're praying in a worldly way. You've got arrogance. Arrogance that blocks the reception of God's grace and stunts their growth in the faith. These are the things that happen in the church when worldliness makes its way in when Christians are worldly. See, this is what James is showing us, and this is so important for American Christians to grasp today, so important for us to see. Christians should look different from the world. We should live different kinds of lives. Our our lives should look different. But all too often, we look just like the world. That's what James is addressing. All too often, Christians adopt the values and the ways of the world. We befriend the world, and in doing so, James says, we make ourselves enemies of God. And what happens when you have enemies of God inside the church? Well, all these terrible things that James talks about here. See, that's what James is describing. He wrote this letter almost 2,000 years ago to scatter Jewish Christians in the Roman Empire. But this section, at least, and not the whole of the letter, he could have written to American Christians in 2020. And he could say to us, you look too much like the world. You look too much like the world. That's what James is describing here. But you know what? James is not satisfied with that. He's not going to leave things like that. He is asking more of us. James loves the church, and so he cannot tolerate it when the church isn't being the church. He cannot tolerate it when the church is less than it could be. He will not tolerate the church caving in to worldliness. He will not tolerate friendship with the world and enmity with God inside the church. Because it ought not to be that way. Remember Jordan Peterson? Remember how we started with Peterson? Like James, Peterson is right to call us to a higher standard. But you know what? James and Jordan Peterson part ways after that. They part ways on the solution. If you really listen to Peterson, because he doesn't have the gospel, all he can really ever tell you to do is try harder. Now, James would not object to trying harder. In fact, the whole of the scripture tells us that that kind of moral effort and moral discipline is part of the Christian life. But that moral effort, that moral discipline is not the foundation of change in our lives. It's not what drives the change. 
And so we have to ask, what does drive change? Where does this transformation come from? How do we make a break with worldliness and get on the other side of the antithesis so we are friends with God once again? What drives change and maturation and growth in the Christian life? Well, James here gives us several ways of answering that question. And I want you to see this, and, and, and we'll close with this. But there are three things that stand out in verses 5, 6, and 8 that I want you to see. These are the things that drive change in the lives of Christians. Verse 5, there is the jealous love of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Now, this verse 5 may be a little bit confusing. It's confusing in a couple ways. One, that it's a hard verse to translate. And also, he says, he makes reference to a scripture, and it's really hard to find any particular scripture that says this. So what is James talking about? There are some translations that make it sound like he's referring to the human spirit. And I actually thought that at one time. But actually, I think it's much better to take this as a reference to the Holy Spirit. God has put his Holy Spirit in us to indwell us. And it's the jealousy of the Holy Spirit indwelling us that James is referring to here. And he doesn't have any particular scripture in view, but really the gist of the Bible's teaching as a whole. And so this is what James says in verse 5. The Spirit he has made to dwell in us yearns with jealousy. And so catch this. Right after accusing the bride of Christ of being an adulteress in verse 4, he says, but God is not going to give up on you. God's jealous love for you persists, even though you've committed adultery with the world, even though the bride of Christ has been adulterous and unfaithful in all kinds of ways. God's not going to give up on you. Like Hosea going after Gomer when she was unfaithful, the jealous love of God keeps pursuing us. Isn't that good to know? Isn't that good to know that Christ's love for his bride is relentless? He does not give up on her. He yearns over her with a jealous love. And he will take her back again and again and again. Even after he finds us in bed with the world, he will still take us back. He loves us with a jealous love and he will not give up on us. He loves us with a jealous love and continues to pursue us even when we often turn away from him, as each one of us does. So that's one thing that drives change in the Christian life, the jealous love of Christ for his bride, the church. Flowing from that in verse 6, James says, but God gives more grace. There is grace upon grace, grace abounding. And then James tells us how to access this grace, how to receive this grace. You want to be shown grace? You want to be showered with grace? James says, look, all you have to do is ask. Humble yourself and ask God for his grace. God resists the proud. God opposes the proud. But to the humble who cry out to him, the floodgates of grace open. Humility is the key. In fact, you could say humility is like a key. Like a key that opens a door. It opens the door to grace. So when you humble yourself, and that means you admit your sin, you confess your sin, you confess your filth, you confess your neediness, your utter dependence upon God and upon His mercy, what happens? God delights to cleanse you, to restore you, 
to heal you, to give you all that you need. That's how God works. That's how God operates. When we humble ourselves, God shows us grace. If we insist on going our own way, pridefully, arrogantly saying, I know best, I know how to live, I'm going to do it my way. If we live in such a way that it communicates, God, I don't need you, I don't need to be in submission to you, God's going to oppose us. God's going to stand against us. But if we will humble ourselves, God will show us grace. This truth is so important. James repeats it in verse 10. He says, when we humble ourselves in God's sight, he exalts us. He exalts us, and that means he gives us glory. He gives us strength. So change is driven first by the jealous love of Christ our husband. Second, we see it's driven by the grace and glory God bestows upon the humble. And then finally, verse 8 James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, there's a lot more in this verse we're going to look at. Uh, we'll come back and look at later, but I just want you to notice this for now. This language of drawing near, this is liturgical language. It has to do with worship, with the church's gathering. Drawing near to God means gathering to worship. It means going to worship. It means going to church. You know, we say, I'm going to church on the Lord's Day. In biblical times, they would have said, we're going to draw near to God on the Lord's Day. That's how they describe gathering for worship. You go back to the Old Testament, this language of drawing near is used for worship at Mount Sinai where only Moses could draw near. It's used for worship at the tabernacle and at the temple. The priests are those who draw near. That's their whole job description is to draw near to God continually on behalf of the people. The sacrifices they offer literally in the Hebrew are called near bringings because of this whole idea of drawing near. You find the same language for worship in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews in particular. Hebrews chapter 10 says, in gathered worship, we draw near to God. He says we can draw near with boldness, with confidence through this new and living way opened up for us through the veil that was torn when Jesus died on the cross. He's talking about what happens when we gather for worship says we draw near to God through this new and living way Jesus opened up for us. Drawing near is entering into worship. We have drawn near to God today. That's what we're doing right now. We've drawn near to God. What's happening? God is drawing near to us. See, if you want to change, if you want to be transformed, you have come to the right place. Not because worship is a work we do. Certainly we do work when we come to gather for worship. There is work we do. We offer thanks and praise to God. But that's not why worship works to transform us. Foundationally, when we draw near to God, what happens? God draws near to us. And what happens when God draws near to us? He gives us his gifts. Through his word and in the waters of baptism and at his table with the bread and the wine. If you want to become what you should be, it starts here in our drawing near to God's throne together. We draw near to God. God draws near to us. When God draws near to us, he transforms us. God gives us grace here to cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts, so we become single-minded in our devotion to him. The liturgy is transformative. In the liturgy, our friendship with God is restored and strengthened. 
Worldliness is the problem. Worship is the answer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.